0: In 2020, my family and I were finally able to make the move from an apartment to our current house. We were very excited about it. We've been waiting years for this opportunity and finally the right house and the right moment happened where we were able to make that jump. Now, some of you, friends and family, many of you sent well wishes and congratulations. This was especially during the time of right in the height of COVID. So I was doing a lot of Zoom meetings or Zoom youth groups, and I would take the youth group around and show them the house and stuff. And they would just be really excited with us, and we were just loving it. And many of you came and blessed us with small housewarming gifts, like a plant or, uh, I don't know, a meal. And you just blessed us in congratulating us in that move. Well, about a month or two after moving in, I was visiting family on my dad's side, and one of my aunts asked me if we had a water cooler yet, you know, like the kind that are big, like four feet tall, and you put like a five-gallon container in them. And I I said, no, we actually don't need one because uh, the, the, the fridge has one of those filtered systems where you can just push on the fridge and it fills your water cup. And there's actually an RO system, a water filtration system. So there's an extra spigot at the sink where you just flip the, flip the thing and it, the water comes out. And it was actually something we were incredibly excited about because for five and a half years, we drank water out of one of those Brita, Brita water filters. And about once a week, one of us would forget to tell the other one we just filled it and we'd pour a cup of water and about a gallon of water would spill on our floor, about every week. So we are super excited. That the water was already like built in we didn't have to do anything about it well her response was too late i'm shipping you one, i've already shipped you one and they're good to have around so about a week later we opened the front door to a ding dong and there was this four foot box with accompanying two five gallon water containers and so i picked it up and i put it in our basement and i kept it there for over a year on the off chance that that aunt would come and visit and we could whip it out and show her that we had been using it and we're so thankful for it. Because we were very, very thankful for it, it just logistically didn't work for us. But for over a year, I kept that thing in my basement just in case because I felt obligated to respond and show her that we were using it. Maybe some of you have sometimes gotten a gift that you felt obligated to use. Or maybe on the other side, more positive side, maybe you've been the person that the gift giver, a gift that you tailored towards somebody, really want, knew that person and wanted to give them something so good. And the gift for you was seeing how that person opened it up, how they used it, how they went about inter- integrating that gift into their life. It's an exciting feeling. It's exciting. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says God saved you by his grace when you believed and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Grace is a gift from God. This week we're going to be doing a deeper study on grace. Last week we kind of primed the pump or opened up the conversation, the definition of grace. What is it and how does it look in our life? But this week we're going to be doing a deeper dive into this word. Grace is a gift from God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God in our life. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's everything for nothing given to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is God's best when we deserve his worst. It's a gift bestowed and offered to us, not determined by our worth or our value or our work, or being able to earn it or pay it back to God, but freely given to us. The very definition of gifts by this very nature is that it's given not based on worth or value, but freely without charge and without expectation of reimbursement. Have you ever given a gift to somebody and said, Well, that'll be $25? That's not really a gift. But who among us gives a gift with the expectation that that gift would immediately just be thrown in the trash can? Only if you're a Dominguez and you play white elephant on that side of the family. That's the time where everybody empties out their goodwill closets and just throws it in there as a gift. But otherwise, when you give a gift, there's a response, an expectation that the user will employ it in their life. Dr. Tim Mackey points out this this about grace. That grace is given unconditioned, not unconditionally. Grace is given unconditioned, not unconditionally. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, one of the few verses that really shaped my life early on in Christianity. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39 says, I am convinced, this is again Paul, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. That is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love is extended to you unconditionally. Meaning that there is nothing in the universe or the powers of hell or heaven that can separate you from God's love. Whether you receive it or reject it, God will never stop loving you. Whether you receive it and then reject it, God will not stop loving you. Whether you reject it and just keep rejecting it, God will love you all the way Until your life has passed. And then on into eternity. God's love is unconditionally given to you. There's nothing that he can do to separate it from you. But grace is given with unconditioned. Meaning this. Grace is not given unconditionally. It's given unconditioned. You don't deserve it. You cannot earn it. But God Extends the gift of grace to you regardless. But once you receive grace, do we remember how we receive grace? Belief. Faith. By belief you've been saved. By belief you receive grace. Your faith. Once you receive it, there is an expectation or an obligation of response to that gift of grace in your life. What is that response? We looked at that last week in verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We looked at the old life, the dead life in us. We looked at how we were slaves to sin under Satan's dominion, how we were dead. But then by the gift of grace, we've been brought back from death and given new life. You've been united with Jesus, seated with him, positioned with Christ. And you're no longer under Satan's dominion or rule. You're no longer uh, subjected to his influence in your life. You're no longer a slave to your passions and to your earthly desires and to the inheritance of sin that you've received. The expectation upon receiving grace is that you go and live your life, your new life that was given in Christ and through Christ to you. What a slap in the face to come to God and say thank you for the grace. Thank you for the undeserved, merited favor and love of everything you've given me. And now I'll go and continue to live my life exactly how I want to. In opposition to you. In opposition to your word. I live and do exactly what my flesh desires and pleases. That is like taking a well-prepared gift unwrapping it, spitting on it, slapping the person and throwing it in the trash can. When you receive the gift of grace, it's given unconditioned. You don't deserve it. But there is an obligation or an expected response from you upon receiving it. Are you tracking with me? Paul himself asserts this. If you look in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10, he says this, his own words. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Here and in Ephesians chapter 2, we see Paul, with the same breath, introduce us to this idea of grace. And work. That's really hard for Christian Americans. Because we have a very unhealthy and broken relationship with work. We're called human beings, but more often we define ourselves by our doings. More often, more accurately, maybe human doings. We look at all the things that we do to give us uh, satisfaction in life, to give us motivation, to give us selves worth. We define each other often by our work, by our doings, not our beings. We assign value to each other based on our work. We often think less of a 35-year-old living in their parents' basement without a job and only playing video games all day. And we elevate the 35-year-old that has three or four children, works a full-time job, cares for his wife as an entrepreneur, working till the day goes dark. We think, wow, that guy is just killing himself. We look at people's achievements, treat each other, or more often expect certain treatment based on that achievement. A few weeks ago, or now I guess a month ago, Amy and I were traveling in Portland for a short pastor's conference, and the first person we met at the f- day one, we had no idea who they were. We, we walked in, we saw this couple, and we said, well, this is a meet and greet, and we don't know anybody, so hey, my name's Josh, what's your name? And we got to know them, had a great conversation, and walked away. And after the conference, we realized they were, both had their doctorates. One of them was a, a, a author a well-renowned christian author has many series on right now media and it makes you go would i have changed anything i feel weird that i didn't acknowledge any of those accomplishments but she's just a person we had a great conversation why does it matter why does her fame or renown matter because we're more often tied to accomplishments of achieving because we want to be able to control our worth with our own hands Grace was an incredibly hard thing for us, for me, to live into, to really believe, to really let it sink down and to live out of grace. We not only treat each other, base our worth on each other by our doings, but we look at ourselves. We say, did I, did I earn my place here on earth today? Did I earn my spot today? Did I do enough to be loved, to be affirmed, to be a person, to feel good about myself? We assign value and self worth to ourselves based on our accomplishments. Amy shared extensively about that last week. We see ourselves as failure or less than what God calls us if we are not as successful as we think we should be. The comparison games start beginning. Am I as successful as this friend from high school? Am I as good as this mom? Am I as good as that pastor? Am I as good as this other person? That dad, that mom, that whatever? Few of us read this passage in Ephesians 2 and think that grace releases us from the demand of work. Every day we still get up, every morning we wipe noses, send kids to school, clock in and clock out from our jobs. So what practically in our lives changes in the scope of grace? How does working from grace change our lives? Adam himself, first day on earth, was given a vocation and occupation. He was called to the title of being a farmer or a gardener. Genesis chapter 2.15 says, The Lord placed man in the garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But in the creation account, God makes humans on what day? Six, maybe? <laughs> day six. And what happens on day seven? Ah, yes. He rested. He's Sabbath. He's Shabbat. he stopped. And I've said this before, but can you imagine that you go in, you get the job, you get the title, you get the position, you go through all the orientation, they give you all the equipment to do it, and you show up Monday morning and they say, great job, take a nap. Great job. We're going to pay you just to sit here and to, and to read and to rest and to eat and to delight. But that's what happened to Adam. He's created on day six. He's given occupation and a vocation. He's given everything he needs to go to work. But the next day, God says, stop. You are a human being. You're not a human doing. Sabbath. Is a weekly reminder. It's one of the reasons why it's a gift to humankind. Is that every week you can come to a certain day and you can stop and you can weekly be reminded that your worth and your value to God is not based on your doing. You know how many times I'll have a conversation with somebody about God and I'll say, how are you doing? And they say, man, I really should be reading my Bible more. I should really be praying more. I should really be, be reading, getting to church more. And all those things are valid and true probably. But what they're saying underneath that is that God doesn't love me because I'm not reading my Bible enough. God doesn't really going to bless me because I'm not praying enough. I'm not a good person because I'm not making my way church enough. And it's all wrapped in my doing. Doesn't mean you're released from work. But living out of a grace is a position that God's given you. And that's the beauty of verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are a human being. So be present. You're not a doing. So stop working for the position that God has freely gifted you. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practicing, Practice Resurrection, he says this. He says, fundamentally, work is not what we do. We are the work that God does. So what changes when Paul sets work as a companion word alongside grace? If the next day, having been raised up with him, we return to the same jobs, the same responsibilities, the same workplace? This, we're no longer working for General Electric, the government, the school board, the hospital, or Safeway. We are God's work and doing God's work. We are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. To make this maybe a little more clear, working from grace is, means realizing that the first work is you. Remember Paul's words that the grace that God gave me wasn't in vain. It's producing something in me. It's producing that new life in me. Recently, I'm, I am not a watch person, Andy. I'm not a watch guy. <laughs> but I have a couple that have been gifted to me that I like, and they're not exorbitantly expensive or anything, but I just have a hard time wearing watches. But On the internet, I got down this rabbit hole or wormhole about Rolex watches and seeing these guys spending exorbitant amounts of money on them. But the one that I particularly found that I really liked is a YouTube account that restores these incredibly expensive and old watches. And so we'll get a watch that's broken and, and been in the bottom of a pond for 10 years or just never stopped working. And I've watched them as he meticulously takes apart these watches. Tears them apart. All the, it's incredible when you start tearing those things apart and seeing all the little pieces, the scope of magnification you need just to be able to see what you're doing. I can't even thread a needle, let alone open up a watch and change out its components. But What's really incredible to me is realizing that the masterpiece, the watch, this $50,000, $100,000 watch is comprised of all Of these little parts all working together so it can tick and run on time so that it all works together and comes together in the end. What I really like though about these accounts is that they're so, they work incredibly hard to preserve and keep the original parts running. They try as hard as they can not to replace parts and so they take things that have rust on them and clean them. They take things that are out of alignment and put them back into place. They clean them, soak them, scrub them, and reattach everything meticulously together. Working from grace is the realization that all these intricacies working under the surface, could the whole function without each every piece? No. Each and every piece of that watch is put there by design and on purpose to do a job so that the whole comes together as the final product. The very first work, when you are working under a life of grace, is realizing that God is working in you first and foremost. You are his masterpiece. And so as God's working in you, as you are trying to brush off that old death life, As you're trying to live into the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as you're trying to live out of grace, you start getting chipped on. Things start getting tweaked. Things start getting pulled. You realize, I've been a Christian for this long. Why is this still an issue? Because God's still working you through it. And He's greasing and aligning and fixing and wiping the rust away and bringing everything together because you are His masterpiece. And so when the watch is all done and it's put back together, is it the watch that's working? Is it the master clocksmith behind the watch that cleaned and put everything together? Is it any individual part that's working on the watch? Yes! It's all working together. Going back to Paul's own words. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So, Ephesians 2 you're a masterpiece. Go about the work that God's prepared for you long ago. We've been given a gift of work. It's good for us to get up and to toil and to work hard, to sweat and to cry and to put effort into doing things. But grace is a realization that those things that we do every single day, that we will give the majority of our life to doing, are not the most important thing to define you. The very first work that is going on is the work of God in you. And then as you allow God to work in you, when you receive that gift of grace, you begin to do things in and through God. And it's this beautiful relationship of being aligned with the master clocksmith. Doing his will, but being a part of it and seeing this whole thing come together. We'll talk more about what that looks like practically in the chapters to come. But it all comes out of this foundation of grace. Brother Lawrence and his book called Practicing the Presence of God. He was a monk. He was a dishwasher and a cook. But people began putting all these letters together after he passed away. And he came out this very small tiny book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he has this incredible line that I've quoted to you before but it's worth saying again. It was observed that in the greatest hurry of business in the kitchen, he still preserved his recollection and heavenly mindedness. He was never hasty nor loitering, but did each thing in its season with an even and uninterrupted composure and tranquility of spirit. The time of business, said he, does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. What Brother Lawrence is pointing to is that in the greatest and most stressful parts of your life, I've worked in a kitchen before. And when service is up, everybody's on deck. You screw it up and you can get cursed at and yelled at and where's this and all that kind of stuff. Every day when your three kids are pulling on you, one's peed the floor, one's crying, the other one hit the other one in the face, one's outside trying to take the dog for the walk, the dog's ran away, the dog's jumping on the neighbors, okay, great, when that's happening... When you're at work and your boss is demanding things of you and other people are not getting you the things you need so you can do your job. When you're feeling pulled in five different directions and you have a 100-hour work week and you only have 40 hours of cram in. When the bills come in and there's not enough to cover and you're at the lowest that you can be, you can still be as if you were taking Holy Communion. You can still be as if you're on your knees before God. life is a practice of worshiping God in everything we do. And it's not the things that we do that worship God. We come in and we call worship standing here, singing, praising God, and that is worship. But worship is also treating your wife with respect, treating your kids with love, treating that one person in a Subaru that followed me all the way back to Sycamore, Riding my tail. When there was 20 cars ahead of me, I couldn't do anything with grace and love and not yelling at them from my seat. I did not do that very well, by the way. These all are living and working out of a position of grace instead of for the gift of grace. I want to bring to you a story as we kind of close in this message today. It's long, but it's entertaining, and I'll just read the entirety to us. And so you can just actually sit and listen. You don't feel, free, feel free to just sit and listen. You don't have to turn there with me. This is Luke chapter 15. We'll start with verses 1 through 3 and then jump to 11. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So, Jesus told them this story, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him, he kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found So the party began. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. He wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All of these years I have slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time you neither gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back from squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son. You have always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. It's a familiar story to us, but one still gets me every time I read it. But the question I have for you in this story today, having it fresh in your mind, where do you see grace? Grace, the unconditional gift given freely, extended with expectation. Grace received on belief and by faith, but your belief and your faith are displayed by your actions and your heart. The only place we see grace in the story is the father. Unmerited favor as he displays it to the son who is long off and returns home. But there are two great opponents to living in grace. And the first is lust. It's the lust of life. Romans 6, 14 says, Sin no longer is your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. If I tell my wife I love her, but then I go and I open Instagram and hit the search button and look at the equivalent of porn. If I open my Netflix queue and I watch 15 seconds of nudity like most of the shows are on there, my heart has revealed different than what my words are saying to her. If I say I love God, I receive this gift of grace, but then go living in a way that is inherently wrong and far from him. You're showing that your words are matching with grace, but your actions are revealing your heart. And you can take that gift of grace and you can manipulate it, you can change it in your mind to say there is grace for everything. So it doesn't matter what I do. I know I shouldn't do this, but there's grace. I'll go to church, I'll repent, I'll go forward to the prayer team, and all will be good. If that's your mentality, then you don't understand grace. And your belief is not really there yet. But there's a second opponent to grace here in this story. And the second is in the oldest son, the one that is living with religious pride. Isn't it interesting that the son in the story is the only person that's reprimanded? Much like a clocksmith coming in and tweaking a cog or a wheel, adjusting the timing of his masterpiece. The oldest son doesn't want a show of grace, he wants a display of justice, of vengeance, of fairness. Why? Because he's lived his life out of religious pride, because he's living for the father's approval instead of from it. Father, don't you see how hard I've worked? Don't you see how much I've studied? How much I've done? Don't you see my tithe checks? Do you hear my daily prayers? Do you see that I show up and volunteer? Do you know that I read my Bible? Don't you know that I make it to prayer meetings? I never miss a Sunday? The list can go on and on and on. Jesus looks at the religious Pharisees. The point of this whole story is for the religious elite. And he said, You are living. You have created a religion that does not need a savior. You've created a religion that you can earn your right, earn my love, earn your position in grace by the things that you can do. Haven't you seen that I've been with you this whole time? I've done everything you've asked. I'm not going to go in and celebrate this no good sinner. we only see grace in the story from the father. But do you realize that we do not know from here as the story ends, if either son gets up the next day and go lives in grace? Does the oldest son join the party or does he stay a a distant, aloof, glaring from the spiritual high ground? Does his heart soften and does he enter in? Does the youngest son receive the gift of position and title? Does he respond from turning from the lust in his heart? Or in a few weeks, does he leave again and wander far away? The answer is left open. The story allows us to find out for ourselves. Which son are you? Which response to grace comes naturally to you today? Tomorrow we will get up and we will work and live from grace. Will we tomorrow get up and work from grace? Or will we work for it? We don't know how the sons respond. But you are invited into this story to find your place in it. And to respond for yourself. Where do we go from here? This idea of living from grace instead of for grace is a reframing and reworking of the way we normally approach life. The shift in mindset from grace versus for grace, from love versus for love, from affirmation versus for it, it is small and minute on paper, but encompassing in practicality. When you begin to live from a mindset, from a position that God's given you, everything changes. How you treat people, how you treat yourself, how you approach your daily work and your life, how you can stop working once a week and still be valid before God, still loved, still accepted. That's the practice small, for and switching it from, but it changes everything. Dallard Willard puts it this way. He says, the first and the most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. Would you just stay seated, but just extend your hands out. And I would just love to pray these words over you again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago.